now trying to record. So Numbers chapter 33, as we continue this study. Tuba City, Red Lakes, Cayenta, Mexican Hat, Landing, Dolores, Lake City, Montrose, Creed, and Dinosaur. A bunch of names that have little meaning to you, but have great meaning to me. These were towns, locations, spots on the side of the road where I camped uh, after I had uh, left college or graduated from college and took a bicycle trip starting in Flagstaff and going up the Rocky Mountains into Canada and across British Columbia. And these were a few of the very first places that I stopped. As I said, they may have no meaning to you, but I remember Tuba City looking around for a place to camp and there was nothing. So I kind of poached an abandoned movie theater and slept safely there in Cayenta, I remember, because we had uh, Navajo tacos and they were delicious after a few days of freeze-dried food. Mexican hat was hot and miserable and the road was horrible. But Blanding was a wonderful, refreshing place with green grass and cooler temperatures and a wide shoulder on the highway. Dolores, I got my first shower after a while of, well, I stunk. Lake City, I ended up getting my first hotel of the day after three um, Continental Divide passes in two days, and it was raining. So I just said, I'm going to splurge and get a hotel. Dinosaur was a place where that we went to. It was an extra long day because we were... Uh, discouraged from our original camping place, saying it was, it was probably a dangerous place, you should probably continue on, and we ended up in Dinosaur, Utah. As I said, camping spots, names of places that you don't really care about, perhaps, but has some meaning to me. And I think this dovetails well into our study in uh, Numbers, Numbers chapter 33, because as you read Numbers chapter 33, if you've read Numbers chapter 33, and if you've read through the Bible, you have, and you've probably forgotten Numbers 33, or you've asked the question, why? Why in the world do we have a list of campsites? Really, it's just a list of names. Towards the end, we get into some teaching and some warnings, but... Really, it is, and they set out from here, and they went to there, and they set out from there, and went to there, and they just kept setting out from these campsites. Why in the world does God give us a list of campsites? And that's a good question, because I've, I asked that, especially as I'm starting to study this text. Um, I began to wonder, why in the world do we have this? And probably, of course, for some of the more spiritual amongst us, we said, well, I don't know why it's there, but I do know that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, and so somehow, some way, Numbers chapter 33, I know it's inspired by God, and in some way, somehow, it is profitable. I hope by the end of the time when we walk out of here today, you might see that there is some profit in Numbers chapter 33. That's my goal today, is that there, we would see some profit um, in this text. So let me just quickly review where we are. Um, it's been a couple of weeks, um, but basically 
the, uh, the people of Israel are on the plains of Moab. They are just camped on the Jordan River. Really, if you look at a map of, of Israel um, or the Promised Land in your Bibles and you go to Jericho and you go just a little bit east across the Jordan River, that's basically where the people are camped. They've been camping there. They're being prepared to enter into the Promised Land. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy, the next book, um, that comes up in the Bible is um, just Moses telling the people of God that this is um, he's, he's repeating the law to him. In fact, that's what Deuteronomy means. It means second law. And so it is comprised of uh, a few speeches of Moses telling the people about the law of God as they are preparing to enter in. So they're prepared to enter in and receive the promise of God. So that's kind of the setting that we should uh, be aware of. Just a quick preview of where I uh, hope to go today um, in, in this message. I hope one of the things that we'll see is that God is faithful to sustain his people in the hostile journey between deliverance and promise. That God is faithful to sustain his people as they journey from deliverance to promise. There's also an admonition regarding Israel's feeble nature to stand amidst a perverse people. And that warning, I believe, will apply to us. That when you enter into the land, you are going to come into contact with some folks who are, whose ways are not your ways or should not be your ways. And you will be tempted to capitulate to their culture. And the warning is to cast out all that would cause you to stumble. And we just learn a lot about God from this chapter. One of the things we're going to learn is we're going to learn, I hope we'll learn um, by God's grace that he is faithful. We've seen that a lot in the book of Numbers, but we'll learn that he's faithful. We're going to learn that he forgives, that God forgives. Another thing we, we're going to learn that I, I find just fascinating is that is that we honor and we can and honor glorify God in the mundane and in the unremarkable. And that God is fashioning his people in the mundane. And then we're going to see uh, the imperative, that is the command to do something, to respond to God's faithfulness in a particular way. So uh, a lot of a lot of pieces in our message this morning. Um, I pray that it is uh, is. We are faithful to the text, so if you will, uh, follow along with me as I read Numbers chapter 33. Listen to the inerrant and profitable word of God. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out from the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places, stage by stage, by command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to their starting places. They set out from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover. The people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments." So the people of Israel set out from Ramses and camped at Sukkoth. And they set out from Sukkoth and camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they set out from Etham and turned back to Pi-ha-hiroth, which is on the east of Baal-zephon. And they camped before Migdal. 
And they set out from Ha-Hiroth and passed through the mists of the sea in the wilderness. And they went three days' journey in the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marah. And they set out from Marah and came to Elam. And at Elam there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there. And they set out from Elam and camped by the Red Sea. And they set out from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. And they set out from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dafka. And they set out from Dafka and camped at Alush. And they set out from Alush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. And they set out from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hataava. And they set out from Kibroth Hataava and camped at Hatzeroth. And they set out from Hatzeroth and camped at Rithma. And they set out from Rithma and camped at Rimen Perez. And they set out from Rimen Perez and they camped at Libna. And they set out from Libna and camped at Rissa. And they set out from Rissa and camped at Kehelatha. And they set out from Kehelatha and camped at Mount Shefer. And they set out from Mount Shefer and camped at Haradah. And they set out from Haradah and camped at Machheleth. And they set out from Machheleth and camped at Tahath. And they set out from Tahath and camped at Terah. And they set out from Terah and camped at Mithkah. And they set out from Mithkah and camped at Ha-Shimona. And they set out from Ha-Shimona and camped at Maseroth. And they set out from Maseroth and camped at Bene-Jaakin. And they set out from Bene-Jaakin and camped at hor Hagidad, and they set out from Hor Hagidad and camped at Jathba, and they set out from Jathba and camped at Abranah, and they set out from Abranah and camped at Ezion Geber, and they set out from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, that's Kadesh. And they set out from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor on the edge of the land of Edom. And Aaron the priest went up on Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. And the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who had lived in the Negev in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the people of Israel. And they set out from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmanah. And they set out from Zalmanah and camped at Punan. And they set out from Punan and camped at Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at Aye Abarim in the territory of Moab. And they set out from Ayim and camped at Dibon Gad. And they set out from Dibon Gad and camped at Alman Diblathium. And they set out from Alman Diblathium and camped in the mountains of Abarim before Nebo. And they set out from the mountains of Abarim and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. And they camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshemoth as far as Abel Shittim in the plains of Moab. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. 
You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Whenever the lot falls to any, for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of, of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell, and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. This ends the reading of God's inerrant and profitable word. So the first thing we're going to uh, try to, to highlight from this text is I want us to look at how God's faithfulness is um, described or how God's faithfulness to his people is revealed in this passage of text. And where we uh, see God's faithfulness are in places such as Egypt and the Red Sea and Elam. And even in this, did you notice this little, uh, this this editorial note about the king of Arad, that just seems so out of place to me. And as I contemplated it, it's like, well, it makes sense now. At at, at Arad, this was the first place where the people of Israel took some of the promised land. This was, in essence, the first fruits of the entire land that was going to be received at a later date. But uh, in a battle with the king of Arad, the people of Israel... Um, received the very first portion, if you will, of the promised land. So we see God's faithfulness in these places. And one of the things we, we see very, very plainly in the beginning of this, um, of this chapter is we see that God displays his glory to both Israel and to Egypt. Both Israel and Egypt saw the power, glory, and might of God. To the people of Israel, they, they, uh, They saw that the promise made to Abraham had not been forgotten but was fulfilled. The promise to Abraham is that he would come and deliver, that they would be kept in bondage, um, that God would make a great nation out of Abraham, that the people would be held in bondage for a period of time, but God would deliver them and bring them into the land of promise. And now that is happening. The promise to Abraham had not been forgotten, but rather had been fulfilled. And what's really interesting is the way the text recounts this is how Israel, a group of slaves, conquered a mighty nation. Perhaps the most powerful nation at that time was subdued Really not by a host of slaves, but by God Almighty, because these slaves conquered this mighty nation without ever drawing a sword, without ever raising a rampart, but conquered and subdued this nation, brought them to their knees and plundered them, and they did nothing. Other than they did the plundering, and here's how they plundered. Would you give us stuff? They went to their neighbors. Hey, you got any stuff to give us and we're leaving town? What do you got for us? And they just heaped. Their, Egypt heaped their riches upon the people of Israel. And so God and his power and his love and his promise is displayed as mighty and glorious. He defeats a nation. He brings them to their knees and frees his people and he, and they walk out with 
great wealth and riches which they are going to need in the wilderness and also what they will need as they start um, living in the new land. But Israel's not the only ones who saw the glory of God because Egypt also learned that the Lord is God and there is no other. Look at verse 4. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgment. God has demonstrated that there is no God but me. God alone is Lord. We can worship all sorts of things. We might consider the Nile River a, 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 a source of strength or some sort of God rules over the Nile River. Or they might assume that Pharaoh is the son of the sun God. But in the end, Yahweh is Lord of all. And that what you worship is futile and feeble at best. You see, the the Egyptians had grown to trust in their non-existent gods, and they began to trust in horses and princes. But let me, one thing that Egypt learns, and hopefully Israel also learned, and that is to trust in horses and to trust in princes and to trust in, in physical might is a precarious place to make your stand. And Israel learned that the Lord is God. He conquered without them ever raising a sword. And Egypt learned that the Lord is God. See, they thought gods were regional. That there was a desert god out there, some shepherd, some Midianite shepherd named Moses, and his desert god has entered across the Nile. Doesn't he know that the Nile god rules this land? Some desert god can't come over here. And we have the sun god. Pharaoh is the embodiment of the sun god. Some desert god from some shepherd is going to come over here and have any authority? Yahweh shows that he alone is God, that there are no gods who can hold him back. They are made up and they are figments of one's imagination. So that's the first thing we learn. God displays his glory in Egypt. But another thing that we see, and this is perhaps as we see this list, people have been asked, commentators and Bible students have asked, why this list? Why do we have such a list? And I think that one of the best answers to this is that this serves as a reminder, that this list of names is a reminder of how God kept them. In other words, we might call this an Ebenezer. You'll note that we sang a song today, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We sang that for a very specific reason, because there is a word in there that most of us don't know. Here I raise my Ebenezer, and we all sing it, and we have no idea what it is we're singing. Well, an Ebenezer um, actually comes out of 1 Samuel, but we see um, aspects of an Ebenezer long before we get to 1 Samuel. And an Ebenezer is simply a stone of help. That's That's the literal understanding of the word Ebenezer. So here I raise my stone of help. And a stone of help was a reminder for the people of God of what God has done. So as you read, especially in Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, you'll see that the people would would pile up a pile of rocks. And God would say, pile, like when they crossed the Jordan River, they piled up a pile of rocks. And God said, pile up a pile of rocks, an Ebenezer, so that 
When your sons in years to come pass by this place and they say, Dad, what's this pile of rocks for? You say, this is where the Lord delivered us. This is where God had mercy on us. And so an Ebenezer is a stone of help. It's a reminder of the things that God has done, the miracles that God has done to deliver us. And so this list of names serves as an Ebenezer. They are campsites that are markers along the journey. This is a written reminder of God's faithful dealing with Israel in the desolate places. Think about it, 40 years without lack. This is a desolate desolation. In fact, the, the actual Hebrew name for the wilderness there is, is a desolate desolation. I suppose that's really desolate. <laughs> and yet, they ate and they drank and they had clothing that did not wear out and sandals that did not wear out and God took care of them. This is a list. They go through it. And much like the list that I read to you in the beginning of this message about names on my on, on one of my journeys that maybe mean nothing to you but are meaningful to me. This was a list of names to these people that they would read them and say, ah, oh, God delivered our fathers in this place. God was faithful here. And these serve as stones of help. And even to this day now, we can look at it and say, I don't even know where these places are. And yet God, to a gener- generation many, many years ago, God was faithful. He's still faithful today. So we might ask ourselves, what are some specific ways in which the Lord has demonstrated his faithfulness to you in the past? And how can you commemorate them? I want you to think about that. We'll talk a little bit as we go along about that. The other, I think, very faithful, where we see God's faithfulness in this, is in a single word in verse 51. Let me read 51 to you and see if you can pick out the very um, significant word. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan. Did you get, did you figure it out? Notice when, not if, when you cross over. When you cross over the Jordan, God is not so short-sighted to leave the work that he began in the hands of a foolish and fickle people. God finishes what he begins. God plans the end and God plans the means. He delivered his people and he didn't say, well, I hope you made it to the Jordan River and across. And I'm going to be rooting for you. God takes them, and then he just doesn't leave them at the banks of the Jordan and say, well, there it is. Nor does he even part the the Jordan River and bring the people across and say, now here it is. God says, when you cross this, you are going to cross this Jordan. Because I don't fail in bringing about my purpose, and my purpose was to bring you into this land. So one of the first things we, we see in this passage of list of names is the faithfulness of God. But we also see the forgiveness of God. Many of the listed campsites were locations of great sin. We see Mara, the wilderness of sin, Rephidim, and Kadesh. These were places where the people of God sinned grievously against the Lord. 
Here's what I find interesting is not what is written, but what is not written. That these places of great rebellion against God Almighty are simply listed without any editorial of the grievous rebellion against God that occurred in those places. The faithfulness of God is alluded to and not Israel's unfaithfulness. So now as we look back and their sin has been dealt with, God now looks back at these places and doesn't say, oh, I remember how bad you were there. He just lists these names. And so we see, as one commentator wrote, and I hesitated to use this word because I'd have to explain it, so I'm blaming it, I'm putting it onto the shoulders of a commentator. But I think it's a good, na- a good way of describing it, the forgetfulness of God. And one of the places we see this standing out for us is in Aaron's death in verse 38. And Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there. You need to remember why Aaron died. Well, of course, he was a man, but he died at this particular time because of his rebellion against God. When Moses struck the, Moses and Aaron were both held account to account for the same sin, and that was the striking the rock in the wilderness. And Aaron received a death sentence for it. His sin at Meribah in Numbers 20, however, is presented here simply as an act of obedience. Aaron went up at the command of the Lord. Not he's dying because of his wickedness. No. What is remembered about Aaron, the last thing we see here, is that Aaron followed the command of the Lord, did what he said. So this fact shows us that we need to be reminded of God's forgetfulness as well as his faithfulness. So as we contemplate our lives and our failings, let us recall the silence of God. Let us not think that their rebellion, however, had been ignored. I don't want to give that impression that God, that they sinned and God just ignored it. See, what had happened is the people sinned and their sins were atoned for in the wilderness. And now looking back on it, their sin had been atoned for and now there is no more remembrance of their sin. Now that there has been atonement, an atonement so thorough, they can now stand before God uncondemned. We should be grateful for the forgiveness and the atoning work of God in this text. So we see the faithfulness and we see the um, forgiveness of God. But one of the things we also note here is how unremarkable some of these places are. The majority of places listed here, we know nothing about. Can't find them on a map, don't know anything about them. Zero. We probably never will. To our knowledge, nothing of consequence happened there. No great sin or no great deliverance. Just not. They camped ate their freeze-dried meal, got up, and left. The majority of the camps were unknown. The reality of the life of the believer is that much of our life is unremarkable. We just kind of go through life. In fact, probably most times we come to church, it is unremarkable. We come, we listen to God's word, we fellowship with one another. Um, But 
it's just a regular church day. We sing songs, we pray, we love the Lord, we love one another. And it's great. But it's not like the roof opened and God came down and the glory of God filled the place so much that we couldn't enter into the building or anything like that, like when they dedicated the temple. It was just a good day to be in the place of God. And I think this is important to remember that much of our life is unremarkable. It is common and it is mundane because there is this this worldly lie that we must live in a perpetual state of excitement. And this, it, it, that idea was preceded social media, but it's inflamed by social media. There's, a, there's an official term for it. It's called FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Because what we see on, on social media is we don't see parents cleaning up their kids' vomit. We don't see people doing dishes. We see wonderful vacations. We see sunsets. We see beautiful vistas. We see happiness when husbands and wives or people are loving one another. Great family pictures. Today you're going to see all these Father's Day pictures and and all these wonderful things. And we think that is the norm. Why is my life not beautiful beach sunsets and a wonderful, romantic, loving relationship with somebody? And why isn't my parents as good as their parents? And we have this fear of missing out. I need to do something. But the reality is, is we don't take pictures of the mundane meal. When you're just tired and you come home and you say, what do you want to eat? I don't know. How about peanut butter and jelly? That sounds good. Let's just eat it. Right? But let me encourage you. We should be active in acknowledging that the Lord of the Lord in the mundane. Because the Lord does work in the mundane. In fact, Paul Tripp says this, if God doesn't rule your mundane, then he doesn't rule you because that's where you live. I mean, really, the majority of our day is pretty, you go to work and you do your thing and you, and you go through your routine and you maybe participate in your hobby or you, you're frustrated because you didn't get to participate in your hobby. You come home, you eat dinner, you check your email or whatever, and you go to bed. I don't know how many dinners Simone and I have had together. Tens of thousands. I'll be honest with you, I only remember a few. Not that we didn't have them, not even that they didn't nourish us or weren't even good. But the reason I have strength to stand here today is because those meals nourished and fed and kept us. And so it is with the things of God. And so let's not cast off the mundane. So we read the Bible. And some days something really amazing. You're like, oh man, that's amazing. I've never seen that before. And some days you just read the Bible and you close it up and you're going, huh? And some days you come to church and it's amazing. You walk out of here just dancing and glorifying God. And other days it's like it was another good day of, of church. Awesome. But don't neglect the fact that God is working in the mundane. Everyday life presents opportunities for growth and holiness. And God uses the ordinary moments to glorify himself by conforming you to the image of his son. So the ordinary things, don't miss them. God 
conforms us to the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ, even in the day-to-day while we're washing dishes and mopping the floor and picking weeds. God is honoring and glorifying himself and teaching us more and more. When you read the Bible and you quote, don't get anything out of it, or you pray and you aren't transported into the very um, third heaven, God is still forming and and still leading you and guiding you. We see these three things. We see God is faithful, God forgives, and God even does it in the unremarkable times of our lives. And then we come to this imperative, the section uh, where it says to drive out, to destroy, and to demolish. This is an imperative. It is a command. Do this. But let me be careful to remind you of one of the things you'll hear at this church a lot, and I say this church because you'll hear it from Charlie as well, a lot, and and that is, I say, I, I preface this statement often with this statement, and that is, if you understand this principle, your Bible study, your understanding of Scripture will improve vastly. And that is to understand the difference between an imperative and an and, and indicative. And here's an imperative. An imperative is do this. The indicative is what God has done. It is talking about who God is. We have just learned because God is faithful, because God has forgiven you, because God has led you, even when you didn't even recognize him leading you. Understand that now, because of his faithfulness, you be faithful. All of Paul's letters, not all, I don't know about all of Paul's letters, but many of Paul's letters are set up this way. Right? Look at Ephesians, three chapters of the glorious means of how God has delivered and saved us and how he has formed a church. And then in chapter 3, therefore, now we get into the imperative, do this. Romans, chapter 12, therefore, 11, cha- or, sorry, um, yeah, 11 chapters of incredible, This is who God is. This is what God has done. This is how God has functioned. And now, therefore, do this. We have here an imperative that follows the indicative. God has delivered you. You didn't even lift a hand in battle. And he saved you by his grace. And when you sinned, he made sure that there was an atonement so that your sin would not forever condemn you to separation from him. And even when you didn't see him, God was present with you, leading you. Therefore, be faithful and drive out everything that might hinder your relationship with the God who is faithful and forgiving and ever-present. And so do this. See, the people have a problem. They are going to be swayed by the culture. And if these influences are not removed, then God's people are going to bear God's judgment. And sadly, Israel never succeeded in this imperative. By the time we get to the book, by the end of the book of Judges, God's people have so capitulated to the Canaanites that you cannot distinguish the Canaanites from the Israelites. They are basically and essentially the same 
in their actions and in the way they live. For God has reminded the people of his faithfulness to them, and now they are to reflect that by their faithfulness to him. All right. So that kind of addresses the text. Let's look at a few gospel connections and see if these may be helpful for us. The first thing I'd like to, uh, to consider is that God is faithful or God finishes what he begins. Let's spend a little bit of time with that. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24 reads like this. I'll go to 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now, here's, here's it's kind of the, the benediction. May the God of peace sanctify you completely, spirit, soul, and body, and be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God can do it. God is faithful to do. So we pronounce a blessing and then I love the little tag at the end. Oh, and God is able to do what I just um, affirmed. We see this also over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. I'll go to... um, I'll just read verse 8, but it's speaking about Christ. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ? He will sustain you for how long? Till the end. Guiltless. In the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the people of God will stand in that day, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of his glorious return, standing blameless. In the midst of his glory and splendor. God will do it. God keeps his own. God resources what he begins. And even in the monotony, God is accomplishing his purposes so that you will stand blameless and complete even in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the day when the People are crying out for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them because they had their sinful estate in the, in the presence of Almighty God. The people of God will be standing blameless and without reproach. Not wishing that the mountains fall on us and hide us from the face of Him, but rather we will see Him as our Redeemer and our blessed hope. So that's the first, maybe, gospel connection. God finishes what he begins. Another gospel connection that we could spend a little bit of time with, and that's just the deal with the Ebenezer's. Right? I told you I'd come back to Ebenezer's. So what are some of the Ebenezer's that, that we have? And I'll list two. You, you might have some personally, and I would recommend that maybe um, some people write in journals have these places where they remember these times where they remember the great things that God has done first Ebenezer that I think or one of the first Ebenezers that the church has is Lord's Day worship why is that an Ebenezer why do we worship on Sunday why do we worship on the first day of the week because it's the day the Lord rose from the dead every Lord's Day is Easter every Lord's Day we remember we remember 
the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons why his people gather together in buildings or um, maybe in fields or in various places in shopping centers and in schools. And But we gather in a place to remember. What do we remember? That this is the day that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead and my, and he was, and, and he was declared the Son of God in power and my sins are forgiven. And we come and we gather and we sing together and we pray together and we bless one another together and we spur one another on to love and to good works because this is the day that the Lord rose from the dead. Every week we remind ourselves that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. It is not a once a year celebration. It is an Ebenezer that we encounter every single week. That's one of the reasons why we gather. This is one of the reasons why don't neglect gathering together. You encourage me when I see you here and I'm realizing you are celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We encourage one another. Another place, another great Ebenezer is uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper. And we have just recently begun to do this on a weekly basis. And one of the reasons as we wrestled, or not really wrestled, but as we tried to uh, establish a firm biblical understanding of why to do that, one of the reasons is to remember what Christ has done. Why not remember it every single week? Every single week we remember our helpless condition and his mighty redemption. Every single week we stand here saying, Lord, forgive me of my sins. And then we see the broken bread and the shed blood of Christ and we partake of it. And we say, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven of my sins. These are Ebenezer's. We're not limited to those. But as a church, those are Ebenezer's that have been given to us. When we get to this, maybe our final gospel connection, is to drive out, to destroy and to demolish. Remember that indicative imperative. This, let, me, um, let me give you the indicative before I get to the imperative. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. <clears throat> and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, Jesus does what the people of Israel were unable to do. They were called to drive out the inhabitants of the land and they failed miserably. Jesus comes along and he does not drive out the people of Canaan, but rather he puts his foot on the very head of the deceiver himself and crushes his head and destroys the very certificate of debt that was witnessing against us. He canceled out the record of debt that stood against us and disarmed rulers and authorities. He cast them out. 
He destroyed them. I love this. He canceled out the record of debt. That you have no debt. Those who are in Christ have no debt. Let me put it to you this way. If God were to go to his ledger, his file cabinet of debt, and look for your name and what you owe, at first I thought he'd pull out your file and say, oh, it's paid in full. That's not the way this text reads. Your file's gone. There is no debt. There is no file with your name on it that says, it just doesn't exist. It's gone. Much more, if he goes to his file cabinet of righteousness, he finds your name in there, and under your name it is fully righteous. You are right. Your debt has been paid. You, in Christ, you have been forgiven of your sins. It has been nailed to the cross. It exists no more. But wait, it gets better because now you are the righteousness of Christ. Christ's righteousness has been credited, has been chosen as selected as, as an asset put into your account. So you have no debt on the debt side, but you have nothing but positive on the credit side. You are the righteousness of Christ. This is because of what Christ has done on the cross. He did it. He forgave us. How did he forgive us? He canceled the record of debt. It's gone. It's nailed to the cross. And all of its demands have been nailed to the cross. And then he disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame. Christ is victor. And so... Having considered the indicative, let us consider the imperative. And the first scripture I'll use for the imperative comes from Romans chapter 8, 13. And it goes like this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are still called to put something to death. It's just not Canaanites. Well, it's not Canaanites. It's the Canaanization of our own lives. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Put it to death. In fact, John Owens goes on. He says, venture all on the first attempt. I love that phrase. Don't do it halfway. Kill sin at its root immediately at your first attempt. Get rid of it. Kill it. Slay it. Drive it out. Kill sin or it will be killing you. This is exactly what God is telling the the Israelites. Drive the people out or they're going to become barbs in your eyes and I will treat you as I was going to treat them. We can fail in many ways. We can fail by concession and by compromise. We can fail by pressing in, not pressing in to the very full extent of God's promises. But when when Canaan is allowed free access into our hearts, we will be enslaved. And let me tell you, temptation never accepts defeat. And it never surrenders. And we all know that. We overcome a temptation today and next week we fall into it. It never accepts defeat. Kill it. Drive it out. Every temptation is ultimately designed to destroy you. The little, quote, little white lie, 
it is ultimately designed to destroy you. Because nobody gets to a place of complete separation from God buried by one simple thought or act. Maybe a good example is there are no addicts who started out saying, yeah, you know, I really want to become an addict. That's what I aspire to. I aspire to live in a gutter. But it starts with just a little, try this. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's a lot of fun. Ultimately, temptation is always meant to destroy. So they must be driven out. Probably one of our greatest threats today is, can't we all just get along? The answer is no. The answer is no. See, God calls us, at least in the King James, a peculiar people. And that doesn't mean that we're strange. Well, we might be. But it means more than that. We are strange in that we are set apart. We are different. That's what Israel was called to do. They were called to be different. But we are a peculiar people. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Here it is, a people for God's own possession. That is it. That's the idea. Peculiar people. You've been set apart by God to be his people. Listen, for the reason why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why did he set you apart? That you might proclaim his excellencies. You are a peculiar, you are a different people. John chapter 15, verse 19. Jesus says this, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Therefore, the world hates you. Listen, if we're followers of Christ, let us not be too surprised that the world hates us. Canaan and Israel could not get along because Israel would always capitulate to Canaan, and they did. And so, I'll conclude with this. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. And I pray that this day, Numbers chapter 33, is seen not only as inspired by God, which I assume we all thought when we entered in, but hopefully as we walk out, we can see that it is also profitable. We've seen the faithfulness of God. We've seen the forgiveness of God. We've been reminded that God is always shaping us, even in the ordinary And that God has provided markers for us that we not forget. And because of his faithful work towards us, he calls us to be faithful to him. Father, we thank you this day that you've loved us. We thank you that you have redeemed us. We thank you for the Ebenezer's in our lives. We thank you, Lord God, that you have been so faithful, that you have disarmed rulers and authorities in heavenly places, that you've canceled out our debt, you've nailed it to the cross, and we stand holy and blameless before you. We thank you. And now, Lord God, let us proclaim your excellencies. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing again.